Support comes from AstraZeneca, a leader in oncology research with three new FDA-approved medicines in the last three years. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the early detection of esophageal cancer with Dr. Carrie Caldwell and Mr. Joseph Gordon. Dr. Caldwell is an associate clinical professor of internal medicine and digestive diseases at Yale School of Medicine, and Mr. Gordon is a patient. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology. Dr. Caldwell, can you review some of the early warning signs and symptoms of esophageal cancer? Yes, certainly. Um, esophageal cancer is, uh, in fact, one of the more uh, devastating um, GI cancers that we see as gastroenterologists. And unfortunately, sometimes uh, there can be no symptoms at all. But in those who are symptomatic, uh, there's uh, a presentation of dysphagia or so-called uh, difficulty swallowing principally to solids. Uh, there may be a sense of increased uh, gastroesophageal reflux or heartburn, uh, weight loss in advanced cases, and then laboratory findings of iron deficiency anemia. So, but again, the presenting symptoms are chiefly dysphagia to solids, eventually to solids and liquids. And the dysphagia may be referred to in the upper esophagus or the throat, but nonspecifically oriented um, when the uh, culprit lesion may be in the distal esophagus where Barrett's esophagitis uh, originates. So what you're saying is that if people are having food sticking when it goes down, maybe a sensation of trouble swallowing that persists for a week, a couple weeks, they start to lose weight, they should really get it checked out. Absolutely. But even um, earlier than that with reflux symptoms that have worsened over time. For example, a patient who has heartburn occurring uh, weekly or uh, acid regurgitation weekly and that it may be increasing in frequency or refractory to therapies such as with proton pump inhibitors, omeprazole, uh, lansoprazole, et cetera. So if symptoms are refractory to treatment, uh, then generally speaking, after vetting by internists, they come to the attention of a gastroenterologist. So if you have heartburn, you got the pills from your internist and things are getting worse, not getting better, you better go back and tell them. That's correct. And, and even in patients whose symptoms are not um, getting worse, if they are dependent on um, proton pump inhibitors, that's the trigger point for an endoscopic evaluation. In other words, we don't want to mask uh, the symptoms without an endoscopic intervention. Dependent means like for a certain time period, if it doesn't get better? And Absolutely. How long? So generally speaking, if uh, the symptoms aren't better within several weeks on proton pump inhibitors, uh, we'll see a patient uh, in our gastroenterology evaluations. Uh -huh. and, and how common is esophageal cancer? Esophageal cancer actually is increasing uh, in incidence in the United States. There may be an incidence now of approximately uh, 16 to 18,000. Um, uh, the incidence has probably increased uh, by 300 to 500 fold since uh, the mid 1900s. 
Um, this varies uh, between genders. There's an increased incidence in men uh, versus women. Uh, there's an increased uh, risk in people who are uh, overweight. So obesity is another uh, risk for this as well. Uh, tobacco usage, um, uh, ethnicity. Uh, so we see this, uh, unfortunately, in older white men uh, more than in other populations. I see. And, and you kind of um, earlier said something about if it's in the proximal or high up in the esophagus, you might feel it more in your throat, and then you contrasted that to the distal esophagus, which is more at the bottom of the esophagus where it goes into the stomach. What's the, the distinction there? Well, it, it, there's a nonspecific locality or localization, I mean. Um, in other words, uh, Barrett's esophagitis uh, is a condition of uh, uh, damage to the distal esophagus, um, and, and so that's in the bottom third of the esophagus. And if esophageal cancer uh, has appeared, it's generally in the distal esophagus for adenocarcinoma. That's the kind of cancer, uh, esophageal cancer, that has increased uh, several hundredfold in the last uh, uh, 50 years. So the symptoms may be uh, uh, referred in the upper esophagus, but in fact, the um, tumor itself or disease is in the distal esophagus. Uh -huh. So it's nonspecific. And you mentioned two things this Barrett's and something we call GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those are and their relationship to esophageal cancer? Yes. So uh, gastroesophageal reflux is a risk for uh, Barrett's esophagitis, and uh, I mentioned um, that um, gastroesophageal reflux uh, is the uh, uh, symptom of heartburn. It's also the symptom of a burning or regurgitation sensation in the upper esophagus or mouth. Um, the experience of either one of these or both of these symptoms on a weekly basis is uh, clinically diagnosed or defined as gastroesophageal reflux. Depending on how that's defined, um, we see this incidence in the population, uh, approximately 15% of adults. Um, endoscopically defined, it's the appearance of damage to the distal esophagus, erosions, um, inflammation, and, and so we may see up to 20%, 25% incidence of gastroesophageal reflux. Barrett's esophagitis um, is a microscopic diagnosis under the microscope, in other words, with distortion of the cells of the inner lining into the esophagus. In other words, um, the appearance of intestinal epithelium, um, which are gastric-like uh, cells, whereas normally in the esophagus we see flatter or squamous cells. And so this um, change in the esophageal mucosa is defined as Barrett's esophagitis when these biopsies are taken above the junction between the stomach and the esophagus. So due to the effect of this acid coming along all the time, the normal appearance of the esophagus turns into look more like stomach. Exactly. So we call it uh, gastric-like mucosa or intestinal epithelium. Uh, sometimes, uh, this is getting into more details, but the presence of goblet cells in the intestinal epithelia. And that itself is a precursor to esophageal cancer. So that's like a pre-malignant 
change that can eventually lead to esophageal cancer. Yes, and so precisely the um, annual risk of developing esophageal cancer from Barrett's without dysplasia is approximately 0.1 to 0.5%. Now, when the mucosa actually becomes dysplastic, uh, low-grade or high-grade, then the incidence of cancer is higher, uh, 10 to 15% cumulative risk. And it's the precise reason that we perform endoscopic surveillance on a patient with Barrett's. Well, that's that's very interesting. So, Mr. Gordon, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your situation and what, what happened with you and, and how you came to be diagnosed? Okay. Um, when I uh, turned 60, um, I'm 75 now. When I turned 60, I uh, knew it was time to have a uh, endoscopic exam, a uh, uh, colonoscopy, and um, I made an appointment with uh, Dr. Caldwell. And um, before the uh, before the procedure, um, he spent quite a, a long time talking to me about my overall health and um, other issues, um, took blood pressure, and, um, and discussed in detail what would be involved in this endoscopic uh, exam of my colon. And I was very interested because I'm an engineer, and one of my uh, jobs that I've had in the past was working for a company that made endoscopes. So I knew what they can do and was very interested to hear what he was uh, capable of doing looking at me. So um, in the process of interviewing me, he said, uh, are there any other issues, uh, health issues? And I said, well, I've got chronic heartburn. Uh, uh, I've had a Duan Lulzer um, as a young teenager, and I've uh, been taking antacids for a long time, and now I take uh, take them regularly for heartburn. So he suggested that while I was undergoing this anesthesia process, that um, it, I should probably have my uh, upper GI system scoped as well. So I said, okay, fine. And um, he found at that time, when I was roughly 60, uh, that I had Barrett's esophagus and explained with pictures the difference in the cellular structure caused by that. And that he prescribed a, uh, a different antacid, um, and the heartburn went completely away. So I felt you know, cured. Yeah. yeah. But he pointed out to me that this was a precursor of uh, possible cancer and I should be screened yearly. And so we basically set it up on a yearly basis for about 12 years. And um, after that time, he, he called me into his office after the exam and there was uh, evidence of a, of a uh, tumor in my esophagus, just as he had predicted could happen. And then he outlined to me what uh, the appropriate uh, uh, next process would be uh, to surgically 
remove that, that tumor. And also, which was very gratifying, that he felt that it could be that it was diagnosed early enough to eliminate, uh, maybe not need a radiation or chemotherapy, which was the case. Um, I was then uh, transferred under the uh, care of uh, Dr. Anthony Kim at Smilo, who a uh, very smooth uh, transition of um, continuity of care, explaining to me what what to expect with the, with the surgery. And um, it was uh, about, uh, I spent about two weeks or 17 days actually in Smilo, and the surgery was uh, um, surprisingly without pain. I had not one minute of pain in the whole process, and um, I, w I think I was also well prepared for the fact that I w would not be able to eat for a while after the surgery, and uh, it was uh, done laparoscopically, so that there was very little, um, very, it, the the size of the opening for my operation, where they completely removed my esophagus, was like a, a an inch right. scar, right. which um, basically was very uh, uh, good for my comfort. I'll put it that way. Right. So, um, so you basically decided to go for a colonoscopy. Yes. But, and, and you are 60. But I just want to point out to our listeners, the recommendation is to start screening colonoscopy at age 50. Oh, I, but we're glad you went at 60. Oh, I and went at, at 50 also. Okay. That's good. Good. Okay. And then Dr. Caldwell talked to you and he said, well, we should take a look in your, um, uh, in your esophagus because you were having these ongoing heartburn symptoms. Yes. And that's how it came to light. And yes. then you had yearly endoscopies. Yes. Wow. It was, it was a life-saving diagnosis by Dr. Caldwell, for, to whom I am very grateful. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, and uh, please stay tuned to learn more information about esophageal cancer, and we'll hear more from uh, Mr. Gordon on his uh, journey with this disease. Support comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 53,000 new cases of pancreatic cancer will be diagnosed in the United States this year. This number represents about 3% of all cancers in the U.S. and about 7% of all cancer deaths. Clinical trials are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers for the treatment of advanced stage and metastatic pancreatic cancer using chemotherapy and other novel therapies. Fulfurinox, a combination of five different chemotherapies, is the latest advance in the treatment of metastatic pancreatic cancer, and research continues at centers around the world looking into targeted therapies and a recently discovered marker, HENT1. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and my guests, Dr. Carrie Caldwell and Mr. Joseph Gordon, join me tonight to discuss early detection of esophageal cancer. So, Mr. Gordon, you were kind of talking about laparoscopic surgery, and it was painless, and you said you couldn't swallow for a while? That's correct, right. How long did that take before you could start eating normally again? Well, I had to, uh, I had a feeding tube right after the surgery, so that's how I received all my nourishment for a while. And then I was transferred to uh, Gaylord Hospital for a uh, re rehabilitation for another uh, two and a half weeks. And in that time, I was uh, treated by a um, speech therapist. In addition to regular um, exercise and uh, dietitians talking to me about what I could and couldn't eat, and how to go from basically eating nothing but liquids um, and then gradually progressing to you know, mashed potatoes, mashed vegetables, and uh, also going with speech therapists into uh, exercises so that I could uh, begin to learn how to swallow without difficulty because what they had done is take the stomach and pull it up right up to my throat and then staple it so that the mechanism of swallowing was it was like a, a new experience. I see. And it was quite a lot of um, attention paid to the epiglottis, which would make sure that the food would go down my uh, digestive tract rather than into my lungs. Yeah, that's and, a problem. Uh, yeah. And then uh, later that was followed up by uh, Dr. Caldwell with a, uh, an active, he could probably, I'm sure he can explain it better, but he could actually watch while the epiglottis would uh, function, and it was functioning fine after that point in time. So I, uh, I f again, I feel very fortunate and very, uh, very grateful. So in the immediate post-op period, you had a lot of training to learn to swallow again or swallow differently or... S yes, that's correct. And, and now you can, you're back to eating normal diet? I feel like uh, I haven't lost any um, satisfaction from eating. Um, I'm at a better weight. I feel great. Uh, I've uh, cut back on my employment. I uh, work only uh, mornings now. Uh -huh. You're not even. You're not retired. You're 75 no. and going strong. That's well, great. Right. Well, I have uh, not going as strong as I did. I have a. Uh, you have to face your mortality, and I thought I have a business that might end up in the dumpster if uh, something were to happen to me. And I trained a young man to take it over who's done a marvelous job, and in the total treatment, I was out of work for close to two months. He ran mm -hmm. the place better than I did, so I'm, uh, I'm very lucky to have been able to uh, preserve my business and live a, a normal life. I'm uh, uh, anxious to kind of tell people who have Barrett's, I have friends that have Barrett's, how important it is to have a yearly endoscopic exam. Well, thank you, and thank you for sharing your story with us. So, um, Dr. Caldwell, the 
Barrett's is one, you know, leads to one kind of esophageal cancer. The, there are other risk factors for esophageal cancer that uh, our listeners should be aware of, um, especially for the squamous type. Would you like to discuss that at all? So, yes. Uh, two main chief kinds of um, cancer of the esophagus, as you mentioned, squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. And whereas squamous cell was the most common esophageal cancer uh, decades ago, now adenocarcinoma is the leading cause. Squamous cell carcinoma is clearly linked to uh, smoking and alcohol, also toxin ingestions, lye, for instance, uh, intentional or otherwise ingestions. Um, and in certain other uh, parts of the world, the squamous cell cancer is still the leading cause. But in the United States, adenocarcinoma is uh, the leading cause of esophageal cancer. And Barrett's is uh, one of the risk factors. Obesity is as well. There's clearly a link with uh, obesity, high BMIs, several-fold risk over the general population. Uh, I mentioned earlier, too, um, older age, uh, gender as well. Um, and uh, we do see a, a decreased incidence of uh, esophageal cancer, and I, I want to point this out, that uh, taking proton pump inhibitors is clearly associated with decreased Barrett's, decreased uh, adenocarcinoma, and increased survival. Uh, there may be an inverse association with helicobacter infection, uh, which is uh, a bacterium that invades the gastric mucosa, so-called the uh, lining of the stomach. And uh, we do see in some cases of uh, uh, Helicobacter gastritis, particularly uh, throughout the stomach, a decreased incidence of uh, Barrett's. Some people may be aware of that by the name of H. pylori. H. pylori. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention is uh, the follow-up and management of such a patient with Barrett's. And uh, we did hear that uh, yearly endoscopic surveillance is what uh, led to this uh, early diagnosis. But lest the uh, listeners um, believe that that is the um, uh, absolute recommendation of all gastroenterologists, uh, generally speaking now, we suggest endoscopic surveillance every two to three years for Barrett's. It was in Mr. Gordon's case that uh, I chose to do yearly endoscopic surveillance because one year he did have what's called low-grade dysplasia in a few of the biopsies. And what I mean by dysplasia, think of it as disordered mucosa. Uh, and dysplasia is a precursor of cancer or early cancer, if you will. So low-grade dysplasia warrants close follow-up, and we did that within six months and then yearly afterwards and didn't see any further dysplasia. Um, Dysplasia, again, is uh, an indicator for more frequent endoscopic surveillance, uh, mm -hmm. which then led to his uh, diagnosis, fortunately, early. And I'll say that because uh, esophageal cancer, uh, unfortunately, um, at the time of diagnosis is uh, a limited disease that is confined to the esophagus in only 25% of patients. So Mr. Gordon was one of the fortunate ones who had the disease confined to the esophagus. Um, by tumor criteria, he was so-called uh, um, T1A and, uh, uh, excuse me, T1B. And it was for that reason, plus the fact that his Barrett's esophagitis was defined as long segment, in other words, longer than three centimeters in his esophagus, that we felt the surgical outcome was the best. There are other options, that, for example, with somebody who has a T1A lesion and short segment Barrett's esophagus who might be better suited to 
uh, endoscopic mucosal resection, or EMR. And this is done by some of our endoscopic ultrasound colleagues at Yale. So I just want to emphasize that. Um, in Mr. Gordon's case, because of the l amount of the esophagus, the length, he needed surgery. But some people with smaller areas of involvement can have surgery done endoscopically. They don't need to have major surgery. It can be done like the same way that they have the regular endoscopic um, look-see. They can also resect it. That's exactly right. And. Uh, Generally speaking, endoscopic therapy is uh, uh, easily tolerated. There are some periprocedure risks of stricture, bleeding, or rarely perforation, meaning uh, penetration through the wall of the esophagus. And then there's even a syndrome of uh, sub. Uh, uh, epithelial or submucosal disease and, or hidden uh, Barrett's and dysplasia. In other words, because of uh, uh, treatment with another form uh, of endoscopic therapy, such as radiofrequency ablation, uh, whereby the uh, dysplastic tissue could be possibly covered up by scar tissue. And that happens in about 5% of patients treated with uh, radiofrequency ablation or RFA. So one of the real keys f or key messages is that if you go for surveillance and they find this early and it's relatively confined, you might not even need surgery. It can be treated and cured without a big surgery with just this endoscopic procedure. That's right. That's, that's very encouraging news today for our patients. And I guess because of the risks you talk about, including perforation, which is basically a hole in the esophagus. Uh, people should be sure to go to physicians who are well experienced with the these uh, endoscopic techniques. That's correct. So the long-term management of such a patient with Barrett's and uh, by whom and where, generally speaking, GERD and Barrett's is uh, a common diagnosis and is managed by uh, the majority of gastroenterologists. And the uh, frequency of surveillance is really uh, contingent on what's the underlying histology, as I mentioned earlier, low-grade dysplasia or higher. When it comes to the point of uh, possibly needing um, endoscopic mucosal resection or EMR or the other alternative RFA, then we'll use the endoscopic experience uh, of people who use endoscopic uh, ultrasound um, and uh, we'll refer patients appropriately for that procedure. Uh, when it is uh, applicable to people like uh, uh, Mr. Gordon. Um, in his case, again, uh, we had him see uh, an endoscopic ultrasonographer not for treatment but really for diagnosis. So I wanted to make that point that in the workup of a patient who has a newly found nodule that by biopsy shows esophageal cancer, we will always use endoscopic ultrasound as um, a determinant of extent of disease. The endoscopic ultrasound probe on the end of the endoscope allows visualization um, within the walls of the esophagus to find out how far that tumor has progressed. So everybody, I think, is somewhat familiar with ultrasound from women who are pregnant. The endoscope people can actually have a little scope with that kind of device on it and they can see how big the tumor is and how deep it goes into the wall of the esophagus. That's kind of an important part of the staging. That's absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. So for the people who are smokers and drinkers and are worried about this, 
Um, we recently had a um, discussion on uh, Yale Cancer Answers about the lung cancer screening program with CAT scans. Uh, what is the recommendation for screening of, for esophageal cancer? So for esophageal cancer, once it's diagnosed, in addition to the EUS, the endoscopic ultrasound, we also suggest a, a CAT scan or PET scan to make sure there's localized disease. And uh, pre, pre that screening, for should people be talking to their doctors about this, going for endoscopies? Absolutely. If they're having symptoms of chronic GERD um, that's getting worse uh, or is... Uh, refractory to treatment uh, of the so-called PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. Dr. Kerry Caldwell is an associate clinical professor of internal medicine and digestive diseases at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Joseph Gordon is a patient. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.